Welcome to Humans Are Us, Human Lives, Human Stories, a podcast about ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are the stories of people that said yes to themselves. Their experiences have helped to make them who they are in this moment. By sharing their personal stories, we hope to inspire others to live their truth. This is a podcast about growth and being one's true, authentic self. Please be advised, this podcast contains adult content and language. Hello, and welcome to Humans RS. I'm your host, MJ Love. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Neha Bansal. This amazing woman started her journey to become a doctor by obtaining her honors Bachelor of Science with a double major in biology and neuroscience in 2005 from the University of Toronto. She went on to attend St. George's University School of Medicine in Grenada, West Indies. After kicking ass in medical school, she was a medical intern, resident, and endocrinology fellow at Winthorpe University Hospital located in New York State from 2010 to 2015. She spent three years working as an endocrinologist in Olean, New York. Currently, she is an attending physician endocrinology at NYU Winthorpe and assistant professor of NYU Long Island School of Medicine. During all this time, she married her lovely husband in October 2011 and had her adorable son in 2015. She also became an expert in trans medicine, and I am proud to call her my friend for the past 20 years. Thanks, Neha, for being here with me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. How did you know that you wanted to become a doctor? I don't really know when it happened. I didn't have any of those like eureka moments. I, you know, I never got really sick. I never had a family member that got really sick that sort of like pushed me into the field of medicine. As cliched as it sounds, it was always like a career option because of my East Indian background. Your parents start dropping hints like at an early age is always there. Um, I come from a business family. And I think because of that, very early on, I realized I'm, I'm not business minded and that was not going to be something I liked. Somewhere around grade 10 in high school, when they started actually teaching you real science, like they subdivided it into like biology and physics and chem, and it wasn't just science. I, I definitely had a keen interest in biology and that just kind of stuck with me. And into undergrad, I took anatomy and, you know, other classes and it just sort of like fueled the interest into the medical sciences I think that's probably always was like a genuine interest in the content. Through interest grows passion. Yeah, there was definitely passion. <laughs> I was a genuine nerd. Yeah. <laughs> there was definitely passion in the content, as as dry as that sounds, but there was. Um, I think I think um I became very uh, one track minded in the medical sciences and undergrad. I didn't really branch out with much electives after that. <laughs> So it, it was it was good. And then when once I decided to to dive into endocrine, it became sort of definitely more of a vocation calling. You work so hard, as so many people who become doctors do. And I think without that passion, that hard work might become a little too daunting, you know, because you're just so in it. I can't even imagine how hard medical school was. Yeah, I, I mean, it's tough. And I think it's not almost it, I mean, the hardness of it wasn't just content and 
memorizing things or learning things. It's just volume. And so it requires time and commitment and it's sac- and sacrifice from, you know, other things. I think that's the hard part, missing people's weddings, missing family, you know, get togethers or just missing normal young people's stuff, going out parties, that type of stuff. Um, and, and just because of time commitments, it was worth it for sure. And I think when you were in it, you didn't really think about it. You probably didn't have the ability to do because you're always busy. <laughs> but uh, thinking back, you know, you're like, wow, where was I for this decade <laughs> when all this was happening? <laughs> Definitely not. You were very focused. Can you talk about then how you ended up focusing on, or I guess specializing in trans medicine? Because that's not something a lot of doctors have, you know, experience with. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, like many things in uh, our lives, opportunity lands in your lap. You don't go out pursuing things all the time. And I guess to understand why this happened, I have to backtrack to the fact that I am Canadian living in America. (laughs) And one of the things that I had to do to get my green card uh, was to move and practice in an underserved community. Um, And I chose at that time when I had to fulfill that commitment to move to upstate New York, um, just about an hour and a half south of Buffalo in a place called Olean, New York. And I was an endocrinologist there for three years. And I was the only endocrinologist for miles, like 150 miles, like miles upon miles. And So people found me, you know, it was almost like, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, you know, oh, there's an endocrinologist here and people figured it out somehow and they found me and uh, trans patients found me from Pennsylvania to all over upstate New York. And, and, and they, uh, they came and I remember I was there for literally, it was my second day of work and my secretary was like, do you do transgender medicine? And I was like, literally fresh out of fellowship. And I remember my exact answer was, I guess it was on the boards. <laughs> I was like, Technically, I can do it. I studied it. <laughs> I And I trained in Long Island. I never had a trans patient in training. It's all it was just theoretical, whatever I knew from the books and from training. Um, but that but I'm like, technically, yeah, I guess. And, that, and then she booked a, a patient and one patient told, I guess, another patient, which led to another patient, which led to another patient. And you realize, um, you know, it's not a skill that you need to like learn like surgery. Uh, all the information I needed to know was already in me, how hormones worked and how to manipulate hormones. I mean, that's what I learned for so many years in training. It was just talking to patients and understanding their needs and their issues and then helping any which way you could. And it wasn't, it was actually a very easy transition and very gratifying because people were very, very thankful, very, there's a sense of, uh, I get the technical term is dysphoria. And when you can let people work through that dysphoria and come out of that, it, it's it's a quite a nice thing to experience, actually. Podcast touched on gender dysphoria specifically. 
uh, with the first podcast uh, with Nevada, who is a transgendered black female and a friend of mine. So um, if listeners have listened to that, we've touched on that and I've posted about that and it's a real thing and it affects so many people. So it's so great to hear that you are helping people work through that. People don't always realize that, you know, transgender medicine is just a small percentage of the world of transgender care, the transgender experience. You know, there's if you were trans male and I gave you testosterone, your dysphoria won't magically go away. You know, dysphoria doesn't disappear with a hysterectomy or or hormone replacement therapy. When you look, um, you know, objectively at the data, the mental health aspects, um, you know, substance abuse problems, suicide risk, that is still extremely high in the transgender population, even after gender affirming care, which includes both hormone replacement and surgery. And so, you know, a layman would think like, oh, but you're fixed. Don't you feel better? And it's like, no, it's so much more than that. And, uh, and so I'm happy to play a role, but it is, um, a, an umbrella of care. That is that that requires so much more. You know, it requires mental health professionals. It requires um, social support. It requires <clears throat> obviously endocrinologists, but also psychiatrists and OB/GYNs and urologists and surgeries and dermatologists and you know, it, it's 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 and 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 a bunch of aspects outside of the world of medicine completely, um, politics and policy. You know, there's still issues regarding transgender in the workforce, in schools. And even if everything's legal, when was the last time you saw it taught in high school or taught in a biology class in college or even to this day talked about in medical schools? So like even if things are all present and everything's legal, it's still very hush hush in day to day living. So, you know, that general acceptance is, is still missing. And you can understand that it's 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 why people still have dysphoria. It's it's not um, it goes so much beyond hormones and surgeries and clothes and makeup. Yeah, because that's really um, just a small sliver of it, you know, and I've talked about this before that I can't even imagine hating your body that much and feeling like your body is not the body that represents you as a human being. Um, so you as an endocrinologist, like what can, or I guess like what exactly medically as a doctor do you do for your trans patients? Okay. So as an endocrinologist and an endocrinologist, I should specify is a physician who specializes in hormones, um, dysfunction of hormones, usually dysregulation of hormones. Um, and in Transgender medicine, the role we play is treatment with those hormones. So, for example, um, maybe you're a pediatric endocrinologist and you have a child who's expressing transgender uh, dysphoria or non-binary dysphoria, and they're sort of abutting puberty. And maybe your role as a pediatric endocrinologist is to delay puberty. Um, because the idea of a, um, you know, a cis female child suddenly having breast development is going to be very dysphoric. Um, 
or vice versa with a cis male child suddenly developing body hair could be extremely dysphoric. Um, and obviously it's, it works in tandem with parents uh, and, and mental health professionals, but that may be a role that they play. And then later maybe prescribing hormones to then sort of um, match the gender that the patient uh, relates to with what their body should transform into. So uh, as an adult endocrinologist, what I do, I don't play a role in delaying puberty. So usually my patients come to me post-puberty and uh, I have a probably an equal mix of patients who uh, come to me to initiate treatment. And then I also have uh, the other half of my patients have already undergone hormonal replacement therapy, and I'm there to just continue. For my patients, uh, oftentimes I work in tandem uh, with a mental health professional. And again, going back to that statement I made earlier that there's no, this is not like a quick fix that you give hormones or and, and you're fixed. These patients usually need lifelong mental health sort of oversight. And you know, I, it, not that I get clearance, but I just want to know that my patients have that support. They're, the mental health professional isn't there to give me permission uh, in any way, but I just want to know that, that that individual has that extra level of support. So I work with them and, you know, you're like, yeah, they're, you know, they've been given their diagnosis of, you know, transgender, which in the, of itself is very controversial. And they come to me to initiate hormone therapy. Part of what I do initially is baseline blood work. I want to make sure that, for example, if it's a trans female, that there's no liver disease or uh, problems that once I initiate estrogens, that they're going to have an exacerbation of an underlying medical condition. Um, I want to make sure that they're not smoking or that they don't have a DVT, a blood clot history, for example, that can be exacerbated by um, exogenous estrogen therapy. So, you know, it's sort of, I come in with a medical perspective and kind of going back to the idea of do no harm. I definitely want to help, but I don't want to give you gender affirming care that's going to lead you to a, you know, a pulmonary emboli. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, um, I do some baseline blood work. Everything looks good. I start hormonal therapy. I then measure hormone levels. Uh, my goal for a trans female is to make sure that their estrogen levels and testosterone levels are consistent with the normal physiologic levels of a cis female and vice versa for my trans male patients to make sure that their testosterone and estrogen levels are consistent with a physiologic cis male individual. And then following them, making sure that over, you know, depending on, you know, the relationship you have, if you're like the one and only doctor that they trust, then I definitely want to screen for um, sexual habits, safe sex practices, reproductive care. If they have an, uh, you know, an OB-GYN or a urologist or a family doctor that they confide in and that they're open with, and I know someone else is doing that, then we can delegate that care to someone else. But oftentimes having that trusting, you know, physician isn't easy to come by. And often you are sort of everything to that individual. So I try to be as comprehensive as I can. Thank you for explaining that because um, I know the trans people I know, sometimes it has felt like 
in order to get the hormones or the top surgery or the vaginoplasty or whatever, you know, it does take quite a long time on the receiving end. So it's so nice to hear um, the perspective of a doctor who is giving that person that medical care of maybe why these things aren't as immediate as the person transitioning would like them to be. Because obviously for them, it is sometimes life and death. I was, I was going to say that if you didn't, sometimes it's life and death. Uh, rates are definitely higher um, and homicide rates are definitely higher. Uh, you talked about your friend being um, trans female and African-American. They are the highest. Unfortunately, that population is the highest at risk for murder in the transgender community. Um, so it's, it is life-saving. And I don't think the medical professionals are there to delay on purpose. If you are in this field, everyone is very aware of, of what it means. And I think at the end of the day, you know, going back, it's, it's about doing no harm that especially, you know, with when, with gender um, affirming surgery, there's no turning back. <laughs> you can't change your mind. Um, so, and the guidelines are very variable. I mean, obviously listeners in Canada may, you know, have, there's, you know, one set of rules and then in Europe, there's another in America, there's obviously another. Um, so the guidelines are very variable. Guidelines are always very variable. And in the world of transgender medicine, they're extremely heterogeneous. Um, But, you know, they say you should live in your desired gender for about a year, you know, dress as such and live as such and and try to be as such for a year before maybe jumping into. And then there's guidelines that say that's not necessary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, some some guidelines suggest that over the age of 18, you should do um, gender affirming surgery. But then in some some instances, because of the extremeness of the dysphoria or mental health, maybe after 16 is OK, too. And there's a lot of this is it or maybe this. And, and, and that's littering the guidelines. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at endocrine society or the w path i mean it's all very heterogeneous the studies are heterogeneous the data is heterogeneous the definition of what transgender is in the medical field is very heterogeneous so it's it's a developing science i would i think i don't i don't want to give you the wrong information but i think the word transsexualism or transgender was coined like in the early 1970s that's it that's it it's a very young field not accepted to this day in many places. Uh, So progress has been limited. Unfortunately, in society, progress is very slow for a lot of things, especially when it comes to people who want to live out of that heteronormative kind of viewpoint. For me, it's interesting to have these conversations and get the viewpoint of a medical professional and learn that you know, the science is a baby still. and The science is a baby. Exactly. 
It's getting quicker. I'd like to say, like, if you look at the um, literature on transgender, it, it, it is an exponential growth. So like in the 1960s, it was almost unheard of. There was like nothing published in the world of transgender medicine. And then in the 70s, obviously, the word was coined and there was a little bit more in publications. But I would say ever since the 80s, uh, you know, it's it's been an exponential curve in the number of publications that have come out in the field. So it is growing. It's definitely growing exponentially. Uh, but, you know, his, our historical data is very flawed, is very flawed. Um, so what do you do when one study was conducted like this and one study was conducted like this? Can you pool the data? What can you learn from it? This study only defined transgender as people who had both gender affirming surgery and hormonal therapy. These people's study only included people who, who had hormone replacement. These people included studies that only identified and didn't really matter what their hormonal study, you know? So, and then they looked at outcomes like death. (laughs) It's It's like, well, was it skewed because of the fact that we included people who weren't treated and they had increased risk of suicide or was it skewed because we included people who had uh, complications of surgery. <laughs> and that's why it was flawed. You know, so it's very heterogeneous. Everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. Everything has to be taken with the concept of do no harm. Uh, because it, 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 it's very uncharted waters. We do know some stuff. There are some facts we are aware of. But for the large part of it, even with which hormones to treat with, is still up for debate, progesterone being a big one that's very controversial right now. So what does progesterone do in the body? So progesterone, um, you know, we think of it as a female hormone. Usually during pregnancy, we think of it as, as, a, as a hormone that helps with carrying a child. Progesterone and estrogen work in tandem for ovulation and, and you know, for the, the, for the purposes of fertility, uh, breast development. And I think it's the breast development where we look at its use in transgender. And it's very controversial because this, again, very heterogeneous studies, and they show that progesterone does help with breast development in trans male, uh, sorry, trans females. And then, uh, and then you have studies that say, oh, it does nothing. (laughs) And and then you have, (laughs) and then you have studies that say, oh, but it, you know, for what you gain, it increases your risk of DVTs. And, um, you know, it, it, there's no, not enough consistent data to put it in the guidelines. So basically use it if you want to use it, don't use it if you don't want to use it. Um, Patients uh, are interested in it. Of course, they're interested in anything that's going to make them more authentically female. That's what they're trying to achieve. Um, it's, It's always a little bit of a battle because you want to advocate for your patients. But Again, we're kind of messing around with meds that sometimes we don't always know what the outcome will be in terms of side effects or risk. Um, so there, I think a good rapport with your patient or a patient having a good rapport with their physician is always good because that will allow for open dialogue. And it's like, I don't, and, and they don't feel like you're just withholding treatment or withholding care for some like malicious reason. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, no, I want to help you. I just don't want to hurt you in the process. And if you're willing to try it with the understanding that there may be some risk, then we can go ahead with this, you know, this 
this, you know, this approach. And so it's very, it's very um, partnership based, I think, when you and you have to talk to your patients and your patients have to be honest with their physicians. And I think for the most part, if you have open dialogue, your patients feel okay. They feel that they, you know, they feel like you are there for them, that you are helping them. And then there are patients who don't think that you advocate for them. And then, you know, they'll find someone else and that's okay. And you can't make everyone happy, you know. Sometimes it just isn't working for them and that's their journey. Being a healthcare worker right now, I know has been super intense and I'm sure has provided interesting challenges. Um, How has the pandemic changed the way that you can provide care to your patients? Yeah. Oh, my God. How has the pandemic affected medicine? My God. Okay. Such a big statement. And I don't want to take up the rest of the time on just that topic. But I think I think the obvious reason was that focus was sidetracked. You know, everybody in New York, which is where I am in the months of March, April, May, June of 2020 was a COVID doctor. You know, there was no endocrinologist or OB-GYN or urologist or dermatologist. It was all hands on deck and um, offices were essentially closed uh, to traditional endocrine patient care in some places. And uh, that endocrinologist was in an ICU intubating someone. So, I mean, there, there was so a, a lot of change in I think patients must have felt it. They probably felt abandoned uh, that their their physicians left and started doing something else. I got very lucky because I'm married to a physician. And what happened was because we both work for the same company, they were nice enough to let only one of us go into the hospital. So I got to stay an endocrinologist during that time. Uh, while my husband became a, you know, an, a, a COVID doctor. And that was very interesting because now I was doing video visits for the first time. Um, and now that we're doing video visits, I, I wonder why we hadn't done this sooner, but uh, virtual visits started and my kid was home. So that was interesting. And it's hard to sometimes have these types of conversations in the presence of a four-year-old. So, <laughs> so there was a lot of, uh, you know, it, it did impact care. I think it did impact care. In New York in 2020, there was a lot of political issues. Um, so even forgetting about trans medicine and just thinking about COVID care, you know, having to like remind people to wear masks or socially distance and now moving forward convincing people that you should get vaccinated and it's, it's okay. It's science and and you should do it, (laughs) you know? So speaking of science, you got the vaccine because you're a doctor. For those of us who obviously are going to have to wait a very long time for it. What was that experience like? Um, Just to also help demystify this whole notion that this vaccine is, you know, going to do something crazy to you. I understand that the hesitation. We have healthcare professionals who are hesitant to take the vaccine. And it's not because there's anything wrong with the vaccine. It's just, it's novel. It's new. And it came around quickly. There was a lot of political crap in the background. So that muddied the waters. But if you just take it factually, the vaccine is made of the same stuff all vaccines are made out of. We've been taking vaccines since we were born. 
There's nothing that novel in it except for the antigen with the spike protein that the coronavirus coronavirus uh, has. Uh, so, or I should, I should specify COVID-19 has, there's lots of coronaviruses. <laughs> COVID-19 has, has the spike protein and that antigen, that unique morphology of the virus, when we give it in the form of vaccine, it's not a virus. It's just a a protein, if you will. It's to mimic the spike protein of the real virus. So that means that when our immune system sees that antigen, that spike protein, it can make a corresponding antibody for it. And that means that if the real virus were to show up, your body has the ability to generate antibodies for that antigen, and you're not going to get as sick. It's how the flu shot works, how the pneumonia vaccine or a shingles vaccine or a hepatitis vaccine works. So there's nothing novel in that about it. The first vaccine is very similar to that of a flu vaccine. You don't really feel it going in. Uh, but a, a little bit, you know, a couple of hours later, I did have arm soreness at the injection site, which I think is not unique to this to this vaccine. I think that any intramuscular vaccine is going to lead to that, including the flu shot. The second one, the second vaccine was a doozy for sure. And, and you know what, maybe that would happen if if the flu shot was two rounds, but it's not. Uh, this being a two round vaccine means your immune system it really is heightening. Uh, so something that people don't always realize is that when you get sick, when you get a virus of any kind, common cold, when you get a fever, when you get chills, when you get weakness, achy, painy, fatigue, malaise, these are not the symptoms of the virus. These are the symptoms of your immune system fighting the virus. So anytime you activate the immune system, you're going to get those symptoms. And because this vaccine has a 95% efficacy, it really woke up your immune system and put it to work. And so you do get a flu-like illness after the vaccine. And it's why a lot of people swear they get the flu after the vaccine, <laughs> after a flu vaccine. It's like, no, you didn't because you didn't get inoculated with the flu virus. Um, you got to experience what your immune system working feels like. Um, and that's the same thing that happens. I think it was it definitely, I've never been, I never took a day off work for the flu shot, uh, but I took a, I had to take a day. I took a day for the, for the vaccine, for this vaccine. Uh, I really was knocked down for about 24 hours. And then you wake up like magic, like nothing's happened. <laughs> You're just like, oh, I feel great. Um, and so it really is just 24 hours of your immune system just getting stronger and stronger and then, and then you're fine. Um, I definitely urge people to do it. I don't think there's really a known contraindication right now. There's no reason to not get it done. In fact, the more your immune system is impaired, the more of a reason you should get this vaccine. I've known people with immunocompromised states, autoimmune disease, diabetes, older people in their 80s and 90s have gotten it. Um, this, the vaccine itself was studied 
in a heterogeneous way where uh, the patient populations who were receiving the vaccine were varied with different comorbidities across different age groups. So it's not like where like a lot of drug studies, it was, you know, 18 to 65 year olds with perfect health. Who got, you know, it was not like that at all. Um, so uh, if there was or is any hesitancy, I hope this helps maybe alleviate it. And just, you know, please, let's all do our part in kicking COVID-19's butt. Yes, let's kick its butt. Um. So my, I'm going to finish with hopefully maybe something a little positive. Has COVID, has, oh, I guess this time, um, almost a year now, has it brought you anything that kind of surprised you? I mean, lots of things about the COVID have surprised me. I think at the end of the day, um, people really are good. People just want to be with their families and their loved ones. And I think the extent of which mankind reached out to one another to be there when they couldn't be there. I think that was really shocking to, I think the first time I saw all the people applauding on their balconies in Manhattan for the healthcare workers, that was like shocking to me when seeing it happen again in India and Italy and all over hospital systems in North America, you know, watching that was just unbelievable that sort of love that people gave to one another when they realized for the first time, maybe they couldn't. I think that was shocking and amazing. I think that was like truly amazing. The rainbows popping up everywhere, the thank you healthcare worker signs for everywhere, the please take a free mask if you need one posts everywhere. And everyone just like, trying to do their part and come together. I think that was beautiful to see, you know, really beautiful to see. Um, also, I think that was shocking on a less like major way was seeing how adaptable children are. Um, I think, you know, if you, if you looked at Instagram for like a nanosecond during those months, like you, there was like some like complaint, <laughs> Like, you know, if I die by touching my face or, you know, like, you know, if I have to stay indoor or if I, you know, whatever, if I do one more Zoom meeting, you know, there was a lot of things to complain about. But like kids were so adaptable, you know, watching my four year old wear a mask all day in school and never take it off or complain about it, um, you know, switching over to Zoom school, you know, this last, you know, two weeks. And not really, okay, I'm going to look at my teacher through this screen now. Um, I think that's amazing. Just uh, taking a, a nod to, to how kids can behave in a time of crisis. Of course, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> so they're not dealing with the same stuff that adults do. But just being able to see someone that is a child, they, they don't need to be tolerant. They can be intolerant tyrants. And not behave that way. Be very supportive, very adaptable. And that was very nice to see. Thank you so much um, for being so open and honest and teaching us all about medicine. And uh, your wealth of knowledge and your support of the trans community is just so lovely because you're just so open and willing to learn and compassionate. And I think that is the most important thing here is, you know, even COVID has taught us that 
compassion is needed in this world. Thank you so much. Honestly, I had a great time. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. And I, I really thank you for trusting me to your baby here, to your show and, and having me on. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Humans Are Us. Never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to rate and review. Enjoyed this episode? Share it with someone you think would love to connect with our growing community. Do you have a story to be shared? Check out our website and send us an email or connect with us on Instagram at humansrs.com.